job, Tom. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Isn't this a glorious passage? Let me pray that the Lord help me and you as we dive into it together. Father, this is your word for your people today. You will speak powerfully to each one of us here and those even through live stream and recording. The word of God for the people of God. It will be powerful and prophetic, pointed and specific. It will be broad and sweeping. It will be life-giving and hope-filling and joy-supplying. Thank you so much for the Word of God. Thank you that while our our flesh and our eyes naturally are, are clouded to it, you will open our eyes and you will subdue our flesh and you will cause us to behold wonderful things from your law today. Oh, bless us richly as we seek your face, as we seek you to stand forth from 2 Samuel 3. Thank you for it. Thank you for the, those here. Thank you for those joining us by live stream. Thank you for your Spirit's presence here, leading us in singing, in prayer, in declaring truth, and now in meditating upon the living Word of God. Stre- strengthen us by it. Equip us for everything that we face. Be glorified in our reception of it. For from you and through you and to you are all things. Through Christ Jesus, we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen. Whenever God is building His kingdom, He's always doing it by mercy. Whenever God is building His kingdom, He's always doing it by mercy. Wherever mercy in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is being offered from a parent to a child, from a spouse to a spouse, from a friend to a friend, within a ministry, or from that ministry to those ministered to, Whenever mercy is being shown, whenever strength is withheld, whenever justice is satisfied by Christ and kindness and mercy and tenderness and grace are being shared with another person and they receive it as such, the kingdom of God is expanding. If I had a passage of Scripture that I would love to share with Vladimir Putin or sit in front of Volodymyr Zelensky, or if I were to speak it to Benjamin Netanyahu, or if I were to speak it to the head of Hamas, Mr. Hanye, it would be 2 Samuel chapter 3. It would be the glory of God building His kingdom through mercy in this passage. Everybody receives mercy in this passage. One of the temptations we have is to read a passage like this or even the whole Bible and say, okay, all I need to do in these narratives is figure out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. If I can just figure out who's the good guy and the bad guy, I got it. Here's the key. They're all bad guys. God is the only good guy in 2 Samuel 3 and in the whole Bible. Every one of the characters on display here is in desperate need of mercy, and God is here granting it. Your life does not paint you as the good guy. Every time you set yourself up as the good guy and look at those who oppose you as the bad guy, you're missing out on reality for one thing, and everybody feels sorry for you and won't tell you about it. And, more grievously, you're missing the mercy that God has for you. The ones who need the mercy the most are the ones who think they need it the least. One of the things I'm hoping you'll do before the end of this message is that you'll go to the Lord and you'll say, Lord, 
even where I don't feel the need for mercy, would you show me where I need your mercy? Would you reveal to me the places in which my heart remains hard, my head remains clouded, my will remains steeled against you and resistant? Would you show me where I think I'm putting my foot down and saying I'm in the right, yet you plan and you intend to show me mercy just there? God is always building his kingdom by mercy. Bless the Lord, O my soul, writes David with regard to this scenario of his life. Bless the Lord, O my soul, says King David, the great songster of Israel, the great song leader of the church. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies your youth and renews your strength like the eagles. David wrote Psalm 103. Many scholars believe in relation to this event and the events surrounding his long seven-year war with Israel when he knew God had raised him up to be king, but he still said, I am not going to take Israel by force, but rather I'm going to show mercy to Israel. David's a great leader because David showed mercy to Israel. Even when Israel was fighting in a civil war against him and rejecting him as their king, still hoping that Saul or a son of Saul would lead them. David is, in many ways, an example of mercy here in 2 Samuel and elsewhere. We love and admire his leadership in many ways because he is a leader of mercy. But David himself, as we shall see, is also one in need of mercy, just as those he opposes. Mercy is the very definition of how God builds his kingdom. It reveals that we are actually citizens of another kingdom other than the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus said before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world The writer of Hebrews says the very same thing in other terms, Hebrews 12. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. If you're a citizen of the United States of America, or if you're a citizen of another country, Those are important, those are worthwhile, those are politically expedient, those allow you to to buy and sell and engage in all manner of other activities, but they are only a shadow to the final and true citizenship that all believers have in Jesus Christ in the heavenly city. Our true citizenship, our true identity comes from being in God and His currency in His political realm, as it were, His kingdom, His covenant kingdom is mercy. Jesus, according to the gospel of Matthew, went on and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds gathered to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is Jesus demonstrating, as he said with his own words, the kingdom of God 
through mercy. In Matthew 4, 23, it says, And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Is your life marked by the mercy of God? Is your parenting marked by mercy? Is your marriage relationship marked by mercy? Is your friendships marked by mercy? Is, is your relationship with your co-workers and online and in your ministries and in church and in every sphere of your life marked by mercy? That's what the kingdom of God looks like. A life marked by mercy. The merciful have strength chiefly to withhold it and restrain it, using it only in the rarest occasions and under perfect justice. The reason why the mercy have strength is to withhold it. David and Judah are at war for seven years with the house of Saul and the rest of Israel. This last seven years has been brutal, and David, who knows he's called by God, he's a, he's a man after God's own heart, and he knows he's supposed to be God's kingdom, and yet he sees these horrible, ugly, bloodletting civil wars much more shameful than any battle with the Amalekites or Philistines because here it's David and Judah fighting against their own countrymen. The very people of Israel that David knows he's called to lead and shepherd and, and care for and oversee and protect, and here they are in battle together. You can imagine over the seven years, David just crying out, God, should I just capitulate? Should I just give in? I can't bear to thrust the sword of my military against another person who's my brother. Not one more time. I'd rather step down. I'd rather acquiesce. I would rather capitulate than see Israel torn apart by civil war any longer. You can imagine his grief. You can imagine his sorrow. He's a godly and honorable man. He, he feels a similar sorrow to Abraham Lincoln during the civil war in this country. More shameful than any war we've ever fought against any other outside enemy. One of the reasons why we admire Abraham Lincoln in this country is because he was a president known by mercy. And it was mercy that brought an end to the Civil War. Here David is extending mercy in a glorious way. In fact, I would suggest even in a gospel way. A, a mercy that God uses to bring about the end of this civil war and to give foundation and beginning to true Israel, this, this Israel of God that's made up of all the tribes and their one king, David, you can see it. It happens here. Even though it's sinners and it's full of darkness and there's so much need for forgiveness and mercy and we'll walk through it here in just a moment. Note what God is doing. God is giving foundation and beginning to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it's been in, in place since the beginning. Yes, under the patriarchs, Adam and Abraham and Noah and Moses. But here it comes on the scene. It's manifest. It's revealed in David. David is God's king over Israel. And it's on display in a person, in the person of King David. And he is marked by a kingship of mercy. I want to show you how God is not only extending mercy to those who oppose him, Abner specifically, and Ishbosheth, but also God is showing mercy to David himself. 
I want to show you, in fact, real briefly in each of the paragraphs that Tom has just read, ways in which God is demonstrating mercy specifically to give foundation and to build His kingdom. I hope every one of these will apply to your life and you'll say, yes, I want that mercy in my life too. And that you'll find yourself, even as you listen and as you study with me this passage, asking God for mercy as we go. First, God shows mercy, kingdom-building mercy, to the sin of David who has multiple marriages. I'm not going to read it through, but you can see there the multiple marriages David has. And even later on in the passage, he asks Abner to bring his first wife, Michael, back to him. Multiple marriages with children from each. And oh, you can see how normal and, and, and rational that was, how, how even uh, clever that was for a warlord chieftain like David to say, I need lots of sons and I need lots of wives and, and I want a strong uh, group of family members around me to show just how great of a king I am and, and how I'm able to lead these, these many wives and how I'm able to have many sons and they'll be my heirs and my generals and they will be strong for me and they will show my strength. But oh, don't interpret, please don't interpret verse 1 to say that God, that God is blessing David's strength with many wives and sons. That's not what that means. We know that because Genesis chapter 2 says marriage is between one man and one woman for life. We know that because Jesus in Matthew 19 reaffirmed one man, one woman for life. We know that the Apostle Paul and Peter all taught the very same thing. And we know that polygamy, as it's demonstrated by David here, is a dishonor not only to the design of marriage throughout the whole witness of Scripture, it's also a dishonor to every one of these women. They did not have a good life. Am I the one he really wants, or is she? This dishonors women, but worst of all, worst of all, besides being rankly unbiblical, dishonoring to women, it also lies about the fact that all marriage points to Christ and His church. Jesus doesn't have multiple churches. Jesus has one bride, and if you're a believer, you're in it. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, that the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So we have here in verses 1 through 5 a foretaste of the kind of weakness, the kind of mercy requiring meekness, weakness in David sexually. That comes to play in the latter part of the story of his life actually in more than one time. If you've ever felt like you need that mercy from the Lord, if you stand with David and say, I've struggled, I've struggled in my life for sexual purity, and I'm sorry, Lord. If conviction is resting on you sweetly right now, don't resist it. Know this. We at the landing here will, will serve to the very end of our abilities and the very fullness of God's ability to preserve and strengthen your marriage and your sexual purity. And we strive to work in our lives and in your lives for the purity that the Bible holds up as beautiful and honorable to Christ. Yet we will also say, there's no one standing here with a stone in their hand ready to condemn you. And Jesus' voice in your ear right now is, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Look at the next way mercy shows up, verses 6 through 11. God and his mercy, his kingdom-building mercy, permits even the wrath of men to serve his kingdom. God in his mercy permits even the wrath of men to serve his kingdom. Look what happens in verses 6 through 11. There's this battle and war going on. Abner, the general, who should have died back in the battles with Saul, stays alive and, and puts up a puppet king in Saul's son, Ishbosheth. But Abner's really in control. And he, in sin, takes a woman named Ritzbah, a concubine of Saul's, as a political move. I'm going to be king. I'm going to take over Saul's harem. I'm going to be the one who's really in control. He's despising Ishbosheth by doing this. He's treating Ishbosheth as no king at all. He's saying, basically, I'm the king. And Ishbosheth calls him on it. Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Why have you taken political supremacy over me? Why have you defiled her, dishonored me, dishonored my father's name? Why, you, Abner, are you acting this way? And Abner is furious because he's been called out. Am I a dog's head of Judah? In other words, that's the worst curse you could think of. If you're fighting against Judah, you don't want to be from Judah, and you certainly don't want to be a dog's head in Judah. To this day, and he proclaims his own steadfast love and loyalty to the house of Saul, and yet we know he's about to switch teams in a second. Sure, Abner, sure. He says, I haven't given you over into the hand of David. He's about to do that. And you charge me today with fault concerning a woman. He won't even use her name. Her name is Ritzbah. She's the one that you violated. And then he calls down an oath upon himself in the name of God. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. And then he uses the Lord's covenant name. And then he says in verse 10 exactly what everybody already knows. Everyone in Israel, everyone in Judah, everyone who reading the Bible and throughout history already knows God had intended to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. From Dan to Beersheba, that's the whole length of Israel. And Abner is essentially confessing here by the way he makes an oath, I've been fighting against God and against David and against reality the whole time. Ishbosheth could not answer him, but remained afraid of him. This Abner needs mercy. This Abner speaks the truth, but he does so from a dark and self-defending proud heart. Even the wrath of sinful Abner, God is using to praise him. Because God is speaking the truth through Abner, shocking as it can be. In fact, if you think about it, the only people on earth who ever speak the truth are sinners. You and me included. We're Abner types. We know better and we have truth in our minds, but our whole lives are not always aligned to it, nor live up to it, nor fulfill the promises of it. Oh, the need for grace and mercy upon sinners such as us. What mercy to Abner. Psalm 76.10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. God is putting like a belt around his waist to carry out kingdom-building tasks, the very life of Abner. He's wearing Abner, as it were. He's owning Abner, and he's giving Abner the words to say, Yes, I'm transferring the kingdom from Saul to David. And I'd plan to do that from the beginning. I'm building my kingdom. The very kingdom that I promised has come to light. It's on the surface. It's on the scene here now in King David. And God says, my mercy is accomplishing that. How perfectly God ordains that the world, this world, your and my world that we're living in right now, is carried out by sinners 
under the sovereign plan and mercy of God. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the highest example that God is willing to permit sinners to praise Him and achieve His goods. Herod, Pilate, the Pharisees and chief priests and elders that called for the death of Jesus, all those leaders who conspired together to crucify the Son of God were at one hand committing the world's most heinous sin and on the other hand achieving God's perfect purpose. Mysterious though that is, it is plainly taught in Scripture in abundant and repeated places. And the point that we are to draw from is to stop before the living God and say, Lord, like Abner and like those whose sin Jesus was dying to cleanse on the cross, I know you, I know you are king and you've raised up your king in David and ultimately in Jesus, the son of David, and yet I have not always lived up to the height of what I know. I have not always confessed and lived and obeyed and rejoiced and loved what I believe to be true. We need mercy in that we're far more like Abner than we dare admit. Then God shows mercy to David again. Oh, it's just such a, such a beautiful passage. Abner sends messengers to David on his behalf. He's, remember now, he's, he's angry against Ishbosheth and he's despising Ishbosheth. He it, it always happens that way. Unholy leaders put their hands on on the things of God and they begin to despise what they laid their hands on. And he's despising Ishbosheth. He doesn't want to be a part of Saul's house anymore. And so he's planning to make an overture to David and saying, "Hey, can I switch teams and come over on your side? You're the winning side. I don't want to be on this loser side anymore." I don't see necessarily true repentance happening with Abner here but only God knows his heart. The messengers say to David, to whom does the land belong? And by the way, Abner, who's saying that through the messengers, expects the answer to be me. He's saying, I'm the one who owns all this land because I'm the one who's running Israel at the moment. Then he says, make your covenant with me, not with Ishbosheth, but me. See how he's centralizing himself and elevating himself in a place that he has no right to do. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. Wow, okay. That's quite a promise. You've got control. He's acting like God. You've got control over all of Israel to bring Israel over to David. Well, in fact, it's exactly how God permits him to function. Verse 13, David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Peltiel, the son of Laish. Poor guy. You thought you were married to a woman, but she was already married to the king. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. And then Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. Saul's house is pitiful. Saul's house is broken and it's collapsing as has been said over and over. David's house is being strengthened, but all by mercy. Abner comes boldly at first to say, I'll make a covenant with you. He treats himself like a king and David like a king. But ultimately, David calls him to be his servant 
And he says, bring Michael, my wife, my true wife, the one whom I have not divorced, the one whom I have paid a high cost for and took great risk for, bring her back to me. David retrieves his wife. Can you not see a picture? Even though broken, even though achieved by Abner and, and weak Ishbosheth and Michael, we don't even know if she wants to return. We know she's, she's David's true wife and never divorced him, but we also don't know what her heart is, and we don't even know what David's heart is. Maybe David's heart is just simply saying, I want to unite Saul's house with my house, and Saul's daughter, Michael, coming back would achieve that. Maybe it's pure political strategy. We don't know their hearts, but we see the picture. And with eyes to look at the biblical passage in front of you, see that the son of David, God's son, is calling for his bride to return to him, the one whom he paid a high cost for, in order that she might be rightfully his bride and not living with another lover. This is Hosea and Gomer. This is the stories in Ezekiel of God addressing Israel and Judah as they had gone after other lovers. This is the return of the church. This sounds like the very uniting of the bride of Christ, believers from around the world, and, and breaking them off from the pitiful false husbands which are no husbands to them and bringing the bride beautiful and pure back to her husband, Jesus Christ. It sounds like the way Jesus healed the woman at the well. It sounds like so many beautiful themes in Scripture, doesn't it? David is regathering for himself his wife, and it is a mercy to Michael. It's a mercy to David. It's a mercy to Judah and Israel, for now the civil war is ending right here before our eyes. The seven-year war is over. Those who had been committing spiritual adultery are brought back, and that's what the Lord is doing on the earth right now. He's going into all the world with the proclamation of the gospel, and he's saying, return to me, return to me, return to me. Oh, that we would be a church that loves being the bride of Christ and loved by him in a deep and sweet and intimate and life-giving way, and that we would proclaim that to those outside these doors and beyond these walls, that we would proclaim it to children and youth and young adults and older adults. We'd proclaim it to men and women we proclaim it to those who've grown up in churches and those who've never once stepped foot in a church. There's another way mercy is on display here. These last two ways are both to Abner and they are glorious gospel pictures. Verses 17 through 19. Some of you might be saying before we read these verses that life is hard and you say God is full of mercy and he's building his kingdom, but I, but I feel... I feel distant from the Lord. I feel under His heavy hand. It almost feels like God is bringing me through intentionally hard and difficult times. It, it feels like financially or health-wise or relationship-wise or work-wise, life is hard for me. It feels like the more I name the name of Christ, the more I lose friends or find strife and difficulty in my life. Where is the mercy, you might ask? Look at verses 17 through 19. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Isn't that remarkable? Abner knows the people of Israel have believed for some time, while they're warring against David, that they should really be supporting David as their king. 
under God's design. Abner continues, verse 18, Now then, bring it about. For the Lord, covenant Lord, has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner speaks the promises of God that are declared to David and are coming to pass the sure and irrevocable promises of God. And he's declaring that promise to all of Israel. And he's saying, Israel, let's make this happen. Let's enact the promise. I just love this passage. Then verse 19, Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. They all rose up and they said, yes, Abner, we will have you become part of David's army and we will no longer follow Ishbosheth. We will in fact follow David as God has determined. All God's promises are yes and amen. These promises were lingering in these Israelite hearts for a long time and now Abner of all people is saying, carry it out, let's do it. Act out the promise of God. How many promises for God do you have rested inside your mind and memory that you're not acting out? How many promises from God that you know to be true but you haven't laid hold of by faith to say mine now and forever? One of the ways I'm going to invite you to respond to this message of God's building His kingdom through mercy is not just to say, I'm going to go to the Lord where I need mercy, where I experience mercy, but I'm going to ask you far more openly to say, Lord, would you show me where I need mercy? For I do not know and have the capacity to tell you, Lord, where I need mercy. I'm not my physician. You are. I'm the sick. You're the doctor. Abner knew exactly what the promises of God were, but he was fighting against them. Don't you find that remarkable? The people of Israel knew what the promises of God were to build up David's kingdom, and they too were fighting against the promises of God. I think the church of Jesus Christ, to the degree that she knows the promises of God but lives in opposition to them, is enacting hypocrisy and is grieving the Holy Spirit and is pushing the newcomers, believers yet to believe, away. This is a challenge and a call to repent. This is a call to say, Lord, would you show me? Would you show our church? Would you show the body of Christ in Duluth and Superior? Would you show the body of Christ around the world and and in the West and everywhere in the world today where we are not acting out your promises and looking like confusing hypocrites, grieving not only your Holy Spirit and not only those with eyes to see within the church, but repulsing those whom you are drawing to yourself. I read a book not long ago, and as I was reading through it, I, I was reminded by study of coming to this myth, this fable and story that seemed to fit so well with this observation that I have made that Abner was fighting against the promises that God had told him, and Israel was too. This myth, this fable caught my attention as I was studying this week, and so I thought I might share it with you again. This story is about a witch who has a home and a very comfortable bed, and she and her daughter welcome travelers. And they lay in this very comfortable bed, but if they sleep past dawn, they turn to stone. 
So the witch warns everybody who comes to lay in her extremely comfortable bed, don't sleep past dawn or you'll turn to stone. So then one man comes and he sleeps and he says, oh, this is the most comfortable bed I've ever laid in. I'm going to sleep as long as I can. And he never wakes up. And it happens again and again and again. And this witch seems to think that she has great power and control because she's removing all these people who she thinks will just simply sleep in her very comfortable bed. Her daughter has a good heart, though, and a young man comes that she takes a fancy to, and she decides that when her mother says, be sure not to sleep past dawn or you'll turn to stone, that she then says, I'm going to gather stones from outside, and I'm going to go lay those stones in this bed. So this kind young man doesn't get too comfortable. And he sleeps uncomfortably all night long. And every time he throws a stone out of the bed, she secretly puts the stone back in bed somewhere else. And he's sleeping in a bed of very uncomfortable stones all night long. And he wakes up in the morning and he says, this was the worst place to stop. That was the worst night's sleep I've ever had. And I don't, can't believe how uncomfortable that bed was. It was like sleeping on stones. And the witch's daughter says, those were my stones of love to keep you from growing too comfortable and being turned to stone. I wonder sometimes if the difficult things in my life are like God loving me with stones to say, I want you not to become too comfortable right where you are and in this place right now so that you do not find yourself lulled into the lies and the stupor and the confusion and the deception that grips this world. The final mercy is also to Abner, verses 20 and 21, and this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Remember, Abner fought fiercely against Judah and against David, and if you remember earlier on in 2 Samuel, it was 20 men Abner and his army killed of David's fighting men, 19 plus David's nephew. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me, and when Abner came with 20 men, To David at Hebron, that number is significant. I killed 20 of your men. I'm coming in good faith, and I'm bringing 20 men with me right now. David made a feast for Abner. A feast. You used to kill all my men. You used to be my arch enemy. We were fighting against each other, but the mercy of God moves me to create a feast for you, Abner, and the men who were with you. Verse 21, and Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the King. I'm going to become no longer Abner the aggressor. I'm going to be Abner the evangelist. And they will make a covenant with you that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away. He didn't kill him. He was his sworn enemy, but he's letting him live. And he went in peace. Abner comes with 20 men. He enjoys a feast and they eat together. He's an Israelite eating with Israel's king. And he says, I'm going to rise up from this feast and I'm going to go throughout the tribes and lands of Israel and I'm going to draw them all. I'm going to call them all to come join and make a covenant with you, King David. And you will reign over all that your heart desires over all the people of Israel. And so David sends a blessing 
the blessing of peace upon Abner as he leaves him. Shocking, stunning, glorious, just like the, the prodigal son coming back, though he had spent foolishly all the father's resources, he comes back only hoping to get a job, and he's warmly welcomed with a great party, a meal, a ring, and a coat over his shoulders and a fatted calf. This is the mandate of the church. Go out to the Abners. Go out to the troublemakers and the civil war makers. Go out to the aggressors, the victims, and the victimizers. And tell them, come and make covenants of peace with your king, David's son, King Jesus. And make a covenant with him, and he will reign over you and all who bow the knee before him in joy. He reigns over all, but in a sweet and special way, over the church, those who bowed the knee of allegiance to King Jesus. Whether Abner is true-hearted or not, we don't know. Whether he's duplicitous, that's what Joab thinks. We'll see that next time. David seems to suppose that Abner has a genuine heart. But the point that I would highlight is this. We don't know what David thinks. We don't know if Joab is right. We don't even know what's going on inside Abner's heart. What we know is we see a picture of God's stunning mercy here. Abner didn't die, though he deserved it. David didn't die, though he deserved it. All the people of Israel didn't die, though they deserved it. You and I don't die, though we deserve it. What a stunning picture of mercy here. Another image came to mind of this stunning mercy and why we love leaders who bear this Christ-like, godly mercy and why we not only want to be led by leaders like that, we want to be leaders like that. One of my favorite movies, Saving Private Ryan, has a scene where Tom Hanks, Captain Miller, and his team that are making their way through the countryside are overtaken by a German machine gun nest, and it's just a couple of Germans, and one dies, and there's one left, and they finally uh, circle around and flank this machine gun nest, and they take over this one last German whose gun is no longer working, and they, they, they disable the gun and take all his food and his weaponry, and then some of the men in the team with Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, they say, let's kill this guy. we got to kill him. Or he'll just go back, get another meal, rest up, and come back with another gun and start shooting our people. And rightly, Captain Miller, Tom Hanks, says, no, we'll allow him to stay alive. Just take his weapon. It's a scene of tremendous mercy in the midst of the horrors and fog and evil of war where Tom Hanks' character... Captain Miller says, no, he gets to live, even if it's likely he will go back to his barracks, rest up, get a meal, and come out with a fresh gun against us. He lets him go in peace, just like David did. He didn't know Abner. He didn't know Abner would, was telling the truth. He didn't know if this was all a strategic ploy. That's what Joab is going to tell him in the next paragraph. It was all a hoax. It was all a scam. It was all a, 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 a wool being pulled over your eyes, King David. We don't know. God knows. What we know is God always builds his kingdom by mercy. You will abound in mercy for others when you have tasted the abounding mercy for yourself from God. Writing of this incident in Psalm 103, David famously says, and you know these words, they're not just for David and Abner, they're not just for Michael and Ishbosheth. They're for you and for me. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, 
nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Let the words of Jesus ring in our ears as we pray. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, I want to be a man of mercy. I want to be known for having enjoyed and received and drunk deeply from the rivers of your mercy so that I might share those rivers of mercy freely with others. I want to be among a family and among a church faith family and among believers in this town and and in this state and across the United States and on the earth today whose lives are kingdom-building mercy-marked. But I'm afraid, Lord, we have not trusted your promises or let your character dwell richly and deeply in us by your word such that we often know so much more than we enact. And for that differential, wherever that gap exists in my life or in this church or in the Christian community in Duluth and Superior or across the planet, I ask you to have mercy on our sin. We're blind, Lord. That's how we could continue the kinds of God-dishonoring crimes we do. We're blind to our need of your mercy. The ones needing the most mercy are the ones least asking for it. I'm asking you for mercy now, Lord. I'm asking you to show me in my life where your mercy is at work, building your kingdom, and where up to now I may have resisted you. For those hearing my voice through recording or live stream or in this room, would you also give them the boldness and vulnerability to say, Lord, show me where I need your mercy. Build your kingdom in me where I have resisted you. Make me more like Christ, who desires mercy and not sacrifice. He came for sinners like me, not the self-proclaimed righteous. Lord, we ask that you would achieve this in us sweetly, quietly, powerfully, intimately, and then cause it to grow like the kingdom, like seed that can't be stopped into glorious trees of fruit and shade and Massive stature. Have your way at the landing and have your way in me, Lord. Grow us to be like you. Mark us by your mercy in Jesus' name. The merciful one, I pray. Amen. Let's respond to the word together by singing as we stand. could remember no wrongs we have done. I'm here, not knowing he comes not there so. 
Lord, would you bless the meal that we're about to enjoy together? Would you bless those who are prompted by your spirit to come and receive specific prayer right now at the front? May those gathering for prayer to meet them be anointed by your spirit to pour down mercy on all who come asking. Lord, would you let conversations over the meal and conversations in this afternoon and evening to come and the week to come be laced with delicious mercy. And build your kingdom among us, Lord. And not just among us, but through us to places we could never imagine. Lord, for the faith family at the landing, I ask for your covenant blessings to keep them. Make your bright, shining face to shine down upon each of them, being gracious to them beyond what they can imagine. Would you lift up your kind countenance upon each, giving them the power of your reigning peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all the mercied ones said together, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.